You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. We're continuing our look at the book of Ruth. We have today and we have next week. And next week we'll conclude our study of this book. But today we're in Ruth chapter 4. And in Ruth chapter 4, we're going to be seeing a story of redemption as it plays out. And there's a variety of things that we can look at and just kind of think about in their historical context as they're described in the passage of Scripture. But obviously we know there's a deeper meaning to many of the things that are illustrated in the book of Ruth. And one of the things that's, that's really illustrated for us all throughout the course of this book is this, this concept of redemption. We've been talking about the fact that God graciously redeems people. And this morning we're going to just specifically look at the fact that our Redeemer paid the steepest price to rescue us as we look at what took place in Ruth's life. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to Ruth chapter 4. And we're going to look at the first 12 verses of the passage. So Ruth chapter 4, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, 
because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of Scripture today and to be encouraged by the things that that you reveal in it. Lord, it's heartwarming to be able to see how this story unfolds as we've been spending multiple weeks looking at Ruth's story and seeing the things that you did in her life and in the lives of those around her, Boaz, Naomi, others. Lord, it's, it's a, a fascinating thing to read, and it's interesting to think about its long-term implications in regard to, ultimately, our redemption through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture and as we think about this idea of redemption and as we think about the fact that, ultimately, the steepest price was paid for our, our redemption, Lord, we pray that we would be appreciative, and we're just so grateful for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your Word together today. We pray that you'd speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, does anyone enjoy working on their own car, or do you prefer to have somebody else do the work for you? Enjoy working on your own car? Yes? Kind of? No? It seems like mostly no. Interesting. Uh, changing the oil in your car. Does anyone change their own oil? Some of you do. All right. All right. Not the majority, though. So that's a task. I think it's probably fair to say that, that few of us enjoy changing the oil in our car, but we also know that failing to do that at regular intervals is obviously going to be a problem. Our engines could fail. I actually had a friend who in college his car stopped working, and then it was determined that he had no oil in it. So that will be really bad for a car. I've actually seen that happen once in a friend's life. I used to change the oil in our vehicles at home, and my goal in doing that was obviously to save a little money. But in recent years, my patterns changed. Somewhere along the way, I came to believe that the time involved The aggravation that uh, came along with the task and then the subsequent need to dispose of the oil properly didn't justify the amount of time that I was spending doing it, and it didn't justify the small amount of money that I felt like I was saving to do it. So I decided to start paying my local business to do it instead, or a local business, not my local business, a local business. Um, But that doesn't mean I, I don't want to maintain some level of frugality. And so before I drive to the garage, I always check something. There's something I always want to check. I always want to check and see if they have a promotion or a coupon listed on their website. And every time I've ever checked, they always have one. And sometimes it'll save me seven bucks, and sometimes it'll save me nine bucks, and sometimes it'll save me even a a little more. And on the bottom of the coupon, and maybe you've noticed this, Uh, when you go grocery shopping or if you're like me and you use a coupon to pay for your oil changes or anything like that. But it'll say something about redemption. And usually the coupons that I get for this this place where I get my oil change, it usually says this coupon is only redeemable at our Levittown location. That's what it says. This coupon is only redeemable at our Levittown location. And I notice that on the bottom of the coupon each time I print it up. And I'm sure you've seen the word redeem or redeemable. I'm sure you've seen it show up in similar fashion in a variety of places. It's it's a word that we most typically use in a financial context or maybe in a business context. I think that's most commonly where I see it in our context brought up. 
And the word carries with it several meanings. It's a word that could mean several different related things. Now, in this context, the context where I'm I'm using it related to a coupon, it means to exchange the coupon for something of value. And the something of value that I'm exchanging the coupon for is a discount. So we'll say, I think the last time I, I used the coupon, it saved me $7. So I'm exchanging it for that value. I'm exchanging it for $7 in value. But in the biblical context, like we see in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today in Ruth chapter 4, the word redeem or redemption, it has a deeper meaning. One of its other meanings is being illustrated here. And when redemption is spoken of in this portion of God's Word, it carries the idea of buying something back and ultimately paying a price to rescue someone who was either in a difficult situation or a destitute condition. And that's the type of way in which this word is being used in this passage. And frankly, when you look throughout the book of Ruth, you can see that the book of Ruth is a beautiful redemption story. And if you want to take that even further, when you look throughout the course of all Scripture, you come to realize that the entire Bible is a story of redemption. You see the hand of God accomplishing the redemption of humanity all throughout Scripture. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to to look at Um, And when you look at the book of Ruth, and and I've been trying to draw our attention to this all throughout the course of our study, and I'll certainly do so today, but I believe that the redemption story that we're given in the book of Ruth, I believe it's shared with us to give us a fuller understanding and a fuller appreciation for the work that Jesus did and the payment that that He made to redeem lost humanity. I believe that's where it's trying to draw our eyes. I believe that's where it's trying to draw our attention trying to help us see something on a deeper level. There are two ways to read Scripture. One is right and one is not right. One way, and maybe I should say the one that's not right, is just simply incomplete. Many people will read Scripture and just look at it and say, okay, this is a historical book. It describes certain things that happened in the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, the end. But when you look at the totality of Scripture and you realize the reasons in which or or for which the Lord gave us His word, what he's attempting to do is to point us to his son, Jesus Christ. And when you look at this scripture and take it in its its full context, that's exactly what's taking place here. And as we've been working our way throughout the book of Ruth, we've been blessed to observe unfolding events that are starting to be illustrated all throughout its pages, ultimately pointing us to Jesus, but also showing us some things that are taking place in Ruth's life. We're told of, of Elimelech, we're told of Naomi, we're told of their family, and how they chose to travel from Bethlehem to Moab, some distance away, not ridiculously far, certainly accessible, but a distance away, and they traveled there during a time of famine. So the, the story opens up with a difficult season in Elimelech's family's life. They're dealing with a loss of food. They're dealing with famine. They travel to Moab, and while they're in that land, they're there for a decade, and during that time, their two sons that are younger when they first move there, but then grow a little bit older as they're, as they're there during those 10 years, those two sons marry Moabite women. And then somewhere in that 10-year stretch when they're in that land, Elimelech dies. And then Chilion dies and Malon dies. All three of the men in that early portion of the story die, and all three ultimately then leave their wives as childless widows. And it's a very precarious situation when you look at how this book opens up and some of the things that the people that are are now remaining and and living are dealing with. And after those deaths, you have Naomi looking at her daughters-in-law, two women, Orpah and Ruth, and she encourages them to do something that on the surface makes a lot of sense. 
She says, I want you to go back to your, to your family of origin. Just go back to your family of origin. This is going to be a tough life for me. This is going to be a tough life for you if you don't do that. I want you to go back to your family of origin, and I'm going to return back to where my family is from. I'm going to actually make the journey back to Bethlehem, but I want you girls to be safe. I want you guys to be well. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be provided for. Go back to your father's households. And Orpah says, okay, I'll do that. And Ruth looks at Naomi and says, I'm not doing that. In fact, I'm going to stay by your side no matter what. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. And if I ever break this pledge to you, may he strike me dead. And so that's what she ultimately conveys to Naomi. Naomi accepts that. And with that statement, Naomi and Ruth make the journey back to Bethlehem together where you get to see some very interesting things, because at that season of your life, if you, or of her life, if you remember, Naomi looked at her life, and she said, you know, I used to be a happy person. I used to be a pleasant person. I used to have pleasant circumstances, but now I just feel so bitter. I just feel so bitter. I feel like God's forgotten me. I feel like everything in my life is just, just in, in, it's just tattered. It's, it's in rubble. I feel like garbage all the time. I feel bitter. This is just terrible. She looked at her life and she said, I wouldn't, basically what she was saying is, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. And I'm certain that there are some of us gathered together today that could look at certain seasons of our life, entirely possible that maybe now is one of them, that maybe you've looked at or are looking at and you're saying, boy, this just stinks. Like, this stinks. This is not what I intended. This is not what I desired. When I was daydreaming about what my life would be like, it didn't include this trial or this trial, or this experience, or this event, and I'm starting to feel bitter. Do you ever go through moments like that where you just, just feel a little bitter? And that's where Naomi was at, and yet at the same time, in the midst of her bitterness, she also was looking out for Ruth. And I think that that's admirable. And it shows us a lot, I mean, there's certainly a lot of things in this book that show you a lot about Ruth's character, but i got to tell you, there's certainly a lot that shows you a lot about Naomi's character as well. And Naomi just looks at Ruth and she thinks, you know, I want her to have a better life than I'm having. I don't want her to grow up and feel bitter. I don't want her to go through the type of things that I'm going through. And she's already gone through so much. She married my son, and now my son's dead. I want her to have something better. And so they go and they travel back to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, you could see the providential hand of God upon their lives. Naomi's not fully seeing it at first. She's still considering herself bitter. She thinks she's forsaken by God. And yet God's going to show up and and reveal to her, you're not forsaken at all. I've been watching the whole time, and I'm steering things ultimately toward an end that's not only going to have benefit for you and your family, but it's going to have benefit for the entire human race. And I'm certain that Naomi was not thinking on that kind of grand scale in that moment. But when they get back to Bethlehem, you see some of these things really starting to play out. And you could see the providential hand of God directing things and steering things and orchestrating things. And in Bethlehem, you have the Lord leading Ruth to glean in a field. That was something that, a way in which the destitute or the poor were provided for under the customs of Old Testament Israel. They were allowed to glean on the edges of the fields. You weren't allowed to harvest the, the grain from the edges of your field that was supposed to be left for those that were in poverty. And so in Bethlehem, you have Ruth saying to Naomi, let me go and glean in a field. And the Lord leads Ruth to glean in the field of Naomi's relative, Boaz. 
She starts gleaning in that field, and, and thankfully, by the grace of God, Boaz, we're told, was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He cared about the things that mattered to the Lord. It's very clear to me when I look at this portion of Scripture that Boaz was living a life that was led by the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Lord to show kindness to these women. And he provided food for them, and you could even see in his words and in the way he challenges the different farm workers to, to treat Ruth a certain way. You'd also see that in addition to providing food for these women, he provides protection for them. And in chapter 3, you see, and we saw this together as we were looking at it, a variety of demonstrations of his kindness, but we're also told in that portion of Scripture that Naomi starts devising a plan to make sure that Ruth receives ongoing care for the rest of her life. She looks at what's transpiring here, and she realizes there's an opportunity here, I think, for my daughter-in-law that I love to be cared for for the rest of her life. And so Naomi starts giving very specific advice to Ruth. She sees what's being uh, orchestrated in Boaz's field. She, I think, is probably starting to see the hand of God at work in their circumstance. And Naomi looks at Ruth, and she advises her to ask Boaz to fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer. And under their culture and under their context, according to what the Scriptures teach, that was a role where if Boaz fulfilled it, he would have to take Ruth as his wife. And uh, they fulfill their plan. They orchestrate this. She makes the request. Boaz expresses his willingness to do so, to take Ruth as his wife. But because there's another relative technically in line ahead of him, he first arranged to find out if that man would be willing to fulfill that role. And that's what we just looked at together as we began reading in chapter 4. And it's interesting when you look at this portion of Scripture and when you compare it to other things that are referenced in Scripture, one of the things that's illustrated for us is that our God is compassionate, and He cares for us. And again, if you're in the midst of a difficult situation, I hope that these are the type of things that the Lord will bring back to your mind, because it can certainly encourage you in the midst of that. But there are several passages of Scripture that talk about the requirements that were required um, of the people that the Lord gave the people of Israel for the redemption of widows and for the redemption of the land. And both subjects are relevant in this story. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, that portion of Scripture gives us details about the ways in which a widow was to be cared for after the death of her husband. And then in Leviticus chapter 25, we see the, an explanation of the laws of redemption related to the land. And I'll give you a brief snippet of it. But in Leviticus chapter 25, when you look at verses 23 down to 25, it says this, "...the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And that portion of Scripture goes into additional detail about how that was to take place and some of the other things that were to go along with that. And so you have Boaz knowing these Scriptures. He knows what's to be done related to the role of a redeemer in regard to a widow. And he knows what's to be done in regard to a redeemer, a close relative who's going to redeem the property and redeem the family. He knows what needs to be done in regard to the land as well. And so as Boaz prepared to honor Ruth's request for redemption, 
He sought to follow the law because he was an honorable man. That's one of the things that's very much illustrated throughout the course of this book, that Boaz was the type of person who was a man of honor, and he wanted to honor the law. He wanted to honor what the Lord had called him to do. And we're told that he invited the other potential redeemer to redeem the land that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi. And the man agreed to do so. And I think it's interesting when you look at that passage, how that all plays out, because you have, you have Boaz telling this man, and the man's not named, but he tells this man about the land, and he says, I just thought you ought to know that this land is available to be redeemed, and since you are the closest relative, maybe you might want to redeem it. And this man, being industrious and, and uh, you know, thinking, all right, yeah, having more land, that sounds great, he, he agrees to do it. He says, yeah, I'll, I'll redeem the land. But I think it's very interesting how Boaz went about this, because in the end, do you think Boaz was primarily concerned about the land or about Ruth? I think we, you know the answer, right? He's more concerned about Ruth. But he goes along and he says, yeah, do you, do you want to redeem the land? And what does the Redeemer say? Yes, I would like to redeem that land. It sounds like a great idea. I will redeem that land. And he's probably thinking about, all, you know, in a flash, like all the ways in which he would use that land. And maybe it would be profitable to him. And he's thinking, oh, that's something that's going to be, you know, just a, what a blessing that's going to be. And uh, that's, that's going to be something that maybe increases my wealth and maybe even increases my status here in the land. Yes, I would like that land. That, that would be wonderful. And then Boaz says, oh, and by the way, when you redeem the land, you will also be taking Ruth, a Moabite widow. I think he throws in the Moabite thing too, because I don't think, I don't, you know, the people of Israel didn't really like the Moabites. It's like, and I think Boaz was totally smitten with Ruth. And, um, and so he just, you know, throws this in. He's like, oh, by the way, there's like this Moabite widow that also has to become your wife if you, if you take the land and redeem it. And then that, the, what's the Redeemer's response? Uh, on second thought, maybe you do it. Maybe you do it. You, you, could, you, could, be the, you could be the Redeemer that, that takes care of this. And so um, it's very funny to me when I read that story and when I see how that all played out because you have, the, you have the man's mind changed almost in an instant, but he says he's basically unwilling to honor the request for the marriage uh, to the widow because he fears that his own inheritance is going to be jeopardized, because the children that would come from that would now be counted among the descendants of Elimelech instead of his own descendants. And so what happens? Well, the Scripture tells us that Boaz bought the land, and the Scripture also says that he made another purchase as well. So did you notice that when it, when it talked about him buying the land, it said he bought something else too? Did anyone catch it? I'm going to bring it up on the screen. He said he bought the land, and he bought something else. It wasn't like a set of AirPods, you know, it wasn't a new pair of sandals to replace the ones that, you know, uh, that his friend had just shared with him, right? Look at what it says. It says, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have, notice the word, bought to be my wife. Bought to be my wife. Did you catch that when we were reading it together a few moments ago? Did you notice that he said it that way? Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. How do your modern-day sensibilities respond to the statement that Boaz makes here? What do you think about that? So does that, does that sound offensive to you? If you're a woman, does that sound offensive? That's what the Scripture says. 
It says he, that he bought her to be his wife. That has to like, be bugging somebody, right? You don't have to admit it out loud because you're wondering, like, maybe it doesn't bother the other people around me. I don't know. I don't know. I have two daughters. I think that their initial reaction, I'm looking at one of them right in the face. Initial reaction, is that weird to you? That kind of weird, that thought? Yeah, she says yes. All right, finally, someone willing to admit it. All right, men, what do you think about that custom? Some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're like, whew, that would have been much easier than the dating process, wouldn't it? You're like, just tell me, like, put me out of my pain. What do I pay, right? I will literally pay any amount not to have to feel emotion, right? You know it. You know that that's true. Here's the thing. Whether or not that fits with our present-day perspective, that's how these matters were handled under the course of Old Testament law. And these requirements, keep in mind, were put in place not to degrade people. I recognize it's very foreign to our thinking and how we would go about these things. These weren't put in place to degrade people, but to protect people and to honor people. And if you look at how this was all playing out, it was meant to secure a lineage for them in a legally binding manner. And you have this all explained there in the portion of Scripture. This isn't to degrade Ruth. This is actually to honor Ruth. This is actually to provide for her in the midst of a very difficult concept. And by the way, if the concept of Ruth being bought, that sounds a little odd to your ears, I want to challenge you in, in, uh, in a not-so-subtle way. I want to point something out to you. And it's very important that we recognize this and just acknowledge and admit it and accept it and welcome it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you have genuine faith in Him, you've been bought. You've been purchased, whether male or female. You've been bought. You've been purchased as well. You no longer belong to yourself, but to Him. In fact, the Bible says that directly on more than one occasion, but I'll show you one for starters. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This is what the Scripture says, and it's in a very confrontational chapter, if you want to read the whole chapter at some point. But Paul said this to the church at Corinth. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's what the Scripture says of us. We were bought. So yeah, Ruth was bought. Boaz bought Ruth. But why does the Scripture say it that way? It could have phrased it any number of ways. You understand what it's trying to illustrate for us through a historical example of Boaz buying Ruth as his wife. Something about our relationship with our Redeemer is being illustrated. We were bought with a price bought with a price, and we do not belong to ourselves. I have to tell you, one of the things I've come to appreciate about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it challenges our modern sensibilities. And I always think it's kind of an interesting dilemma that when you're a pastor, you put yourself in if you decide that you're going to stick to what the scriptures actually say and preach it in its totality. When you become a vocational pastor, you're putting yourself in a spot where you can preach the word in its totality and uh, at times, whether you intend to or not, offend people. It's true, right? If you stick to what it says, you will offend people. I just saw uh, something that happened last Sunday. I won't use the preacher's name, even though I don't, it wouldn't matter if I did. But well-known, well-known preacher in our, in our day and age. He's in his 80s, so you can figure it out if you want. Um, and he was preaching on marriage in his church context last Sunday. 
And he just shot straight. He just shot straight exactly with what the scripture said. He didn't add to it and he didn't take anything away. He just shot straight. And you know what happened in the midst of him preaching on that? Several people stood up and walked out. And you look at that, and, I, and I, I, as I looked at that, I thought, all right, you know, I can't help but have deep respect for those that are willing to tell the truth, even if you run the risk of offending. And here's one of the things I've learned about Scripture and about the gospel itself. It feels offensive sometimes because it's purposely trying to provoke you to realize you're in a messed up state that needs to be fixed by Jesus. And if you don't submit your life over to him, you're going to stay in that messed up state. And God loves you too much to leave you in that state. And so he tells you the hard thing that you don't want to hear like a true friend. I have this theory. A true friend will tell you if you've got food on your face. True friend will tell you if you've got food on your face. If you're out with people and they won't tell you and you've got food on your face... They might not be a true friend, right? So now think about that all the times you've discovered a half hour later when you looked at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I had food on my face. Last Sunday, following the worship service, our family took Pete Kroll, a missionary who was with us, took him, took him out to, to lunch, and we got, um, we got honey mustard chicken pizza, and he got honey mustard all in that beard. He had no idea. And I looked at him and I said, Pete, I've been friends with you for a long time. And he's like, yes, you have, John. <laughs> and I said, Pete, you have honey mustard all throughout your beard right now. And he's like, oh. And I said, but it hasn't been there long because I'm a true friend who told you as soon as I saw it. And he's like, John, you really are a true friend. A true friend will tell you if you've got food on your face. The gospel challenges our modern sensibilities, and that's a good thing. The Lord is a true friend to those he loves. The Lord will tell us the truth. Anyone that proclaims and preaches the word of God should stick to the truth as well. Even if it might, and actually at this point now, I am so not a fan of our modern sensibilities. I think how wonderful to have that challenged and to be able to think beyond it. And again, at times when you're looking at scripture, it may for a moment offend. That's not its deepest goal. Its deepest goal is actually to heal. But sometimes I think to get our attention and stir us up a little bit so that we start paying attention, the Lord will use that moment to offend us briefly and then demonstrate the healing that he wants us to experience as we wrestle with the meaning of what's being shared with us. And when we come to trust that our Lord has our good in mind, and he really does have your good in mind, and that he's joyfully working out the details of his redemptive plan for his glory and for your good and for your benefit, There'll be a point in your life where you'll come to him and you'll start thanking him for the things that once offended you. You'll be like, I get it now. I see it now. I'm starting to see it with your eyes, Lord. Thank you for what was initially an offense because now it comforts my, my soul. And the scripture tells us in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we don't belong to ourselves. We were bought at a price. Our bodies are not our own. The moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's a true blessing that you and I get to endure and get to experience through, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says, we therefore become a temple in which He dwells. He lives within us. And notice as I'm referencing the Holy Spirit, I'm not speaking it, right? Some people make the mistake of referring to the Holy Spirit as it, as if the Holy Spirit isn't God Himself. The Holy Spirit, He indwells you. He moves into you. 
He lives inside of you. He dwells in you. And we're made holy in the sight of God. We're made a holy temple, the Scripture refers to us as. And we no longer belong to ourselves. We no longer belong to this world. We no longer belong to the devil. And so instead of living in rebellion against the Lord, we're called to glorify God in our bodies because we've been bought at a price and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us. So that means looking at our lives a brand new way, looking at our lives a completely different way. It means treating our bodies and using them in such a way that we remember that our body is actually a temple of God, a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God lives within you. That has implications for what you choose to put in your body. Keep that in mind. That has implications for how you care for your body. It also has implications for the sexual activity that you choose to engage in. And in fact, if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 6, one of the things that the Apostle Paul was confronting the Corinthians about was their failure to understand the nature of how sexual activity is supposed to be conducted within marriage only. And then you have something in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, that says this, knowing that you were ransomed. So this is the same concept as redeemed when you see this word ransomed. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So I love what 1 Peter chapter 1 is telling us. It's basically making it clear that we were ransomed and redeemed from the futile kind of lives and mindsets that we once embraced while we were living in a state of unbelief. And the Lord's saying, you don't have to live in that state of unbelief any longer. I've rescued you. I've pulled you out of it. I've rescued you out of it. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And what did the Lord do? Through Jesus Christ, we've been given life. We've gone from death to life. We've been made brand new people. We have new mindsets. We have new lives. We once embraced a state of unbelief, and now we don't have to live like people or think like people who, were, who are distant from God because that's not the way we relate to Him any longer. We are brought close to the Lord. We are reconciled to the Lord. We've been ransomed and redeemed, and we were bought at a price and redeemed with something of eternally greater value than money. And that's why you have Peter saying, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with what? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is what was spent. Our redemption was paid for through the precious blood of Jesus Christ when he willfully and joyfully gave his life for ours upon the cross. That was the payment. So you look back at the story of Ruth, you see Boaz making a payment to redeem Ruth, to make her his wife. What did Jesus do? He made a payment, but it wasn't with cash. It wasn't with money. It wasn't with silver or gold or anything perishable. It was with his blood. He shed his blood on the cross to pay for you, to pay for your redemption, to buy you unto himself, to make you his bride, to unite you to himself. He paid for your redemption. Before we were united to Christ by faith, before we experienced that union, Scripture speaks of us in a particular way that most people, I think, again, would find somewhat offensive. Scripture says that we were living in two ways. It describes us as enemies of God who were living in slavery. So enemies and slaves, that's what we were 
apart from Christ's intervention. We were living as enemies and slaves, and we didn't even realize it. I certainly didn't realize I was, in, I was living as God's enemy. I just thought I was being ambivalent to him. And the scripture says, no, it doesn't really work that way. I was living like his enemy, and I was living like a slave. And that's what I was. I was enslaved by my own sin. I was enslaved by Satan. I was enslaved by a worldly mindset with its empty promises, and so were you. We were enslaved to a perspective that failed to take eternity into account. And that was the way we went about life. That's the way we thought about things. We just lived in the moment without a true understanding of the future, and we just tried to consume the best of whatever we thought this world could offer us, and we thought that that was sufficient. But Jesus looked at us and he said, I'm not content to leave you in that kind of state. And in his compassion, with eyes, look at, you know, the scripture talks about he endured all of this for the joy that was set before him, being able to see what would come from this. He endured this pain, he endured this scorn, he endured the shedding of his own blood to purchase our freedom from that slavery. He rescued us and he redeemed us. He is the ultimate redeemer. He pulled us out of that destitute state. He purchased our freedom from slavery, the very same kind of redemption, just on a deeper level, but the same kind that's taking place between Boaz and Ruth in this particular context. And Christ made us his bride. He brought us into his family. He gave us his name. And he set us free from the shackles of sin that we were once bound by. And I don't know if you've thought about this in a while, but I want to bring it up to us because I think it's valuable and I think it's certainly encouraging. Please consider the many benefits of redemption that have been been given to us through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we've been granted eternal life. Are you grateful for that? I am so grateful for that. It definitely impacts the way I perceive my life on this planet. Because I don't look at this as all there ever will be. I actually had a thought this week. I, I thought, you know, sometimes in my life I think, do you ever just have a moment where you're just not feeling content and you realize it's irrational because you've been blessed in so many ways? And then you look at it and you think, why am I looking for this to be heaven? This isn't heaven. I'm here on earth. Sometimes this is a slog. Sometimes this is difficult. You go through tough stuff. Why am I looking for this to be heaven? This wasn't, this wasn't promised to me to be heaven. I have eternal life. I can see beyond this. This is just a momentary season. Light and momentary trials until we get to heaven. Through Jesus, we've been granted eternal life. How about this? Our sins are forgiven forever. When I look at my life, there are things I've gotten right, but there's more things I've gotten wrong than I've gotten right, and your life is exactly the same. And I'm so grateful for the fact that through Jesus Christ, my sins are forgiven forever. 10,000 years from now, those things aren't going to be held against me because I've trusted in Jesus who paid for my sin and redeemed me and rescued me, gave me his name and gave me his righteousness. And that offer is available to all of us through faith in him. How about this? Another benefit of redemption through Jesus Christ is that sin no longer holds us in chains. You're set free from it. It's elective at this point now if you give in to sin. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't need to give in to sin any longer. You're not chained by it any longer. You don't have to live a life like you're still chained to something you've been set free from. How about this? We've been adopted into the family of God. You know, just yesterday I had to to fill out a reference for Seth and Becky are in the process of adopting a child. Pray for them in that process, by the way. Remember Seth and Becky in this process. And um, I look at that and I think, you know, we have been adopted into the family of God. 
What a blessing to experience that on the, through, through the redemption we have through Jesus Christ, to have that as an additional blessing that comes along with that. How about this? We're no longer God's enemies, but we're His family. Isn't that a wonderful thing? How about this? We bear the name of Christ. I've grown up my whole life with a last name no one pronounces right. And I, I don't even know if I, if I ask you. Some of you have been going to this church for a decade, and I bet you you still get my name wrong. And that's okay. It's not my ultimate name, right? It's kind of a fun name. I think it said Stongy, by the way. If you're, it, so don't goof it up anymore, all right? Um, <laughs> I kid you not, I had been someone's pastor at my previous church for like five years, and he called me up and he said, Pastor Stange, I have a quick question. I said, Rick, I have been your pastor for five years, and you think my last name is Stange? He's like, well, what is it? I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to tell you? Stange. Well, all right. Well, one of the benefits we have in redemption is we bear the name of Christ. So I guess I don't have to worry about people mispronouncing my name in eternity because it's going to be a non-issue. How about this? We, pass a, or we possess a peace that passes all understanding through Jesus Christ. How about this? In God's eyes, we are seen as holy and blameless. We don't even see ourselves that way. And yet, what, what does Scripture say? No, in God's eyes, He sees you for what you will be, holy and blameless. These are the benefits of being redeemed through Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I don't know if anything's got you down right now, but I hope just thinking about that sort of stuff for a few minutes can perk your spirit, because it certainly perks mine. I'm going to share a story with you as we finish up this morning. I love good historical stories, especially when they help illustrate something that's a biblical concept. We familiar with Winston Churchill? Everyone familiar with Winston Churchill? If you're not familiar with Winston Churchill, please do some reading on the man. Excellent leader, somebody we could all learn a lot from. But during World War II, he was prime minister in England, and, um, and you know, there's, he's, I believe he's been made an honorary American citizen because of the close bond that existed between our countries during that period of time. But let me just sh- share a little something related to, to him. So I, I'm just going to share it as I found it. I'm just going to read it to you. It's very interesting. I thought it was a, a great story. A wealthy English family once invited friends to spend some time at their beautiful estate. The happy gathering was almost plunged into a terrible tragedy on the first day. When the children went swimming, one of them got into deep water and was drowning. Fortunately, the gardener heard the others and heard them screaming, and he plunged into the pool to rescue the helpless victim. That youngster was Winston Churchill. And his parents, deeply grateful to the gardener, asked what they could do to reward him. He hesitated, and then he said, I wish my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. We'll pay his way, replied Churchill's parents. Years later, when Sir Winston was prime minister of England, he was stricken with pneumonia. Greatly concerned, the king summoned the best physician who could be found to the bedside of the ailing leader. That doctor was Sir Alexander Fleming, the developer of penicillin. He was also the son of that gardener who had saved Winston from drowning as a boy. And later Churchill said, rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. What was rare in the case of that great English statesman is is in a much deeper sense a wonderful reality for every believer in Christ, this writing happened to say. The writer says, the Heavenly Father has given us the gift of physical life, 
And then through his son, the great physician, he has imparted to us eternal life. And then he goes on to say, May the awareness that we are doubly indebted to God as our creator and redeemer motivate us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. When we look at a portion of Scripture like we're looking at today from the book of Ruth and looking at some of the surrounding portions of Scripture that come alongside of it, again, please understand that the Lord's trying to use this story to get our attention to illustrate a very deep and powerful concept related to our own redemption. The Lord looked at you and was not content to leave you to fend for yourself. And he said, I'm going to intervene. And I'm going to do something that you can't do for yourself. You would be destitute without me. You would be lost without me. You would have no hope. You would have no future. You would have no name. You would have no land. You would have no plan. You would be lost completely. You would be dead. And the Lord looked at us with compassion, with love, with that twinkle in his eye. And he said, because I'm the only one who really could do something for you, and ultimately the only one who's willing to do what could be done for you, I'm going to do it. And so Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived the perfect life on our behalf, died to pay for our sin, atoned for our sin with the shedding of his blood, rose from the grave on the third day, and he looked at you and me and he said, do you want this too? Do you want the assurance of resurrection? Do you want my victory to be your victory? Do you want my name to be your name? Because Christ looks at us and he says, I'm willing to redeem you. I'm willing to take you into my family, into my household forever. And he doesn't ask you to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. He doesn't ask you to figure everything out. He doesn't ask you to get every last detail of your life straightened out ahead of time because he'll straighten it out with you and for you. What he simply asks of you and me is, is that we trust him, that we receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as the gift that it is that we could never earn, that we could never deserve, but he offers it in his mercy and in his love. And I don't know where our hearts are, but I will tell you this. It would be a shame to read through the book of Ruth and not really hammer that message home to our own hearts. The redemption that is ours through Jesus Christ. And I invite you, if you don't know him as your redeemer, to trust him to redeem you because he will do that for you. And he will usher you into a life that is far beyond what you could naturally earn or expect. And he will give that to you as a gift and he will secure it for you for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and realize that there's more at play here than just Ruth's redemption. You're showing us something here that has implications for the redemption of humanity. You're giving us a very personal picture of what it looks like when someone's rescued from certain death. And Lord, that's exactly where we were. You tell us in your word that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and you also tell us that we were not seeking you. Nobody was looking for you. We weren't waiting to someday find you. We weren't trying to figure it out. We were essentially content to just go about living in our own ignorance and denying your own existence and trying to consume the best of this world and thinking that somehow that was going to satisfy the whole in our hearts. 
But Lord, we're grateful for the fact, Father, that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be our redeemer. And Lord, we know that there are plenty of people in this world who reject him and reject his work. We know that there are plenty of people in this world who who basically treat the miracle that you've accomplished through your son like it's a fantasy. And Lord, we know that the only reason we would even accept the work that he's done on our behalf, we know that the only reason that we would trust in your son to rescue and redeem us is if you open our eyes and soften our hearts. So Lord, we pray that you would jostle us out of our complacency, and if there be anyone among us that as of yet has not received that gift of salvation that you so freely offer and that you paid for with the most expensive price possible, we pray, Lord, that today would be the day that anyone who as of yet has not trusted in your Son would come to faith in your Son. We're just so grateful, Lord, for the fact that you offer redemption to lost humanity. I'm grateful, Lord, that you opened up my eyes years ago to understand my need for the Redeemer, and that you've changed my life as a result, that the focus that, that I carry and the things that I'm thinking about and my ultimate perspective has been altered because I know your Son. So, Lord, thank you so much for giving me new life, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless each and every one of us with that same experience And I thank you so much, Lord, for the reminders that you give to us in your word that reveal to us things that, naturally speaking, we would never have understood on our own. Thank you for redemption through your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compared To podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compared To Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe.